We'll be reading from Luke this morning, chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbour? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So I was just getting mic'd up there, and um, I'm, keep, I'm keeping my jumper on. The, uh, our, our landlord has told us this morning that um, we are no longer eligible for heating because it's after Easter. So my advice to you is to come wrapped up in future. Now, I've never preached with glasses before, so these things will come on and off at regular intervals. Try not to be distracted. Um, I'm glad Rob prayed for Michelle and the family and we must continue to do so. One of the things that has struck me in recent weeks has been the finality and the awfulness of death. Um, Several celebrities um, have died in recent months, David Bowie, Ronnie Corbett, others, and um, we know that obviously Martin went to be with his saviour just a week or so ago. And um, it's made me think about death, and I know it's a a lovely Sunday morning, and I don't want to cast us down, but we don't think enough about death. Uh, Maggie and I went to a funeral recently of uh, a neighbour of ours, a young 24-year-old man who was killed outside his place of work, uh, knocked down 
by uh, a car and killed. And um, the finality and the sadness of death came through at that funeral where there were so many young people, many of them in tears. And it, it struck me how cruel death is and how final death is. And um, I was trying to make some sense of this. And um, I found this poem. It's not actually a poem. It was never intended to be uh, a poem. But it was written by an Anglican clergyman as part of a sermon he preached uh, on the death of uh, one of the kings of England. I can't remember which one it was. But it was in 1910. And um, it's called... Death is nothing at all. You might have heard it, and you might have heard it at a funeral. Death is nothing at all. It does not count. I have only slipped away into the next room. Nothing has happened. Everything remains exactly as it was. I am I, and you are you. And the old life we lived so fondly together is untouched, unchanged. And whatever we were to each other, that we are still. Life means all that it ever meant. It is the same as it ever was. There is absolute and unbroken continuity. What is this death but a negligible accident? All is well. Nothing is hurt. Nothing is lost. Now, don't want you think about that poem or that part of a sermon that was preached on that particular day but um, it's a lie if you've known a member of your family die somebody who's close to you you recognize that it's a great disruption isn't it and you live with the memory of that person and sometimes those memories are lovely but death is an awful thing and the worst thing that has ever come into this world and the Christian message is that death has come in because of our sin. So serious is our sin that death has come into the world and every single one of us is going to die. We are all subject to death. But the great message of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ has died on the cross to liberate us from the power of death. And he rose again on the third day and is now in heaven waiting for us to join him there and therefore we need fear death no longer death doesn't have any power or strength over us its sting is gone so when we come to this story um, we need to bear that context in mind because you won't often as you listen to the radio uh, as you go on social media as you watch the television you won't hear a lot about death Death is embarrassing, it's something to be tucked away, not to be thought about or spoken of, because it's difficult to deal with. That's the way we deal with it in 21st century Britain. But in, uh, in these days in which this story was set, it was very real. Death came to people much younger in life. You'd very, very rarely see somebody get to 70. And children died a lot. Death was around every time. So when this lawyer comes to test Jesus with this question, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a real question. And it was a question 
that tortured and tormented everybody because everybody knew somebody who had died. And um, this lawyer comes to test Jesus, not realising, I suspect, that he was asking the central question of life. How can I obtain eternal, everlasting life that doesn't end where death is defeated and I live forever? He was actually wanting to show off, as we see later in the story. Now, we've reached uh, the end of Luke 10 in this, uh, in this series that we're having on the Gospel of Luke as, as we begin our church life together at Emmanuel. And this story, I want you to know, is intended to be part of a two-part answer to the question. It's a bit unfortunate that the end of the chapter got truncated on the printed version. But uh, if you've got your Bible with you, it does go through to the end of verse 43, and we will cover that, don't worry. It does seem to get cut off in our version, but don't worry about that. The scholars agree that the two stories that we have here in the second half of Luke 10 belong together, even though they may not seem to at first glance. The truths they teach are complementary, and they're two sides of the same coin. So back to this story. Let's read it very quickly. So this expert in the law, he's a theologian, he's a teacher, he's a clever guy, stands up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as so often, you'll notice as you read the Gospels, doesn't directly answer the question. He answers it obliquely in getting this man to think more about the kind of question he's asking. So he says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the man says, quite a clever answer actually, a, a very correct theological answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. Now that's a conflation of Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 and Leviticus 19 verse 18. I know you knew all that. Very simple. It's a very good answer, a very clear answer, but it's quite simple. Love God perfectly and treat others as you would treat yourself. <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a great answer. Love God perfectly and treat others as you would treat yourself. I asked Daniel Sinclair this morning if, he knew, if he'd ever read The Water Babies. I don't think anybody ever reads The Water Babies anymore, do they? Those old Victorian novels, they're kind of very moral. They're kind of faded away from the, the GCSE syllabus, I suspect. And um, The Water Babies was written by uh, a Victorian gentleman called Charles Kingsley. And uh, if you ever read, if you Google it, it'll give you the basic outline. And so it's, a very, it's a rather strange story, actually, about some very small children who live in the water. Anyway. But he creates this character, there's two or three characters in the novel, and one of them is called Mrs. Do-as-you-would-be-done-by. You can tell it's Victorian, because it's very moral. Mrs. Do-as-you-would-be-done-by. And there's another character, but I couldn't remember who that was, who's got a similar-sounding kind of name. You can see the problem with this answer, can't you? Love God perfectly and treat others as you would treat yourself. Two major problems. One is we can't love God perfectly 
And secondly, you only have to read the history of the world to know that treating others as we would treat ourselves is very far from the human agenda. I don't know whether you've read this week, I was shocked by this story of these two teenage girls who killed this vulnerable woman in Hartlepool. It's actually a very shocking story. And somebody said to me at work this, this week, they said, actually it's a story to which we're becoming almost immune because of the horrors that we pick up through the media every single day. Last night, a hundred people in India died in a fire in a Hindu temple. As we go to bed tonight, you can be almost sure that the news will have something on it tonight which will be death, which will involve death and the finality of death. So, there are problems with this answer, even though it's quite a correct answer. And the man goes on. <laughs> I, th- I don't think he realises, he's, he's digging his own grave, actually, as, as he goes on with this uh, dialogue with Jesus. And, and wanting to look good, as the text says, it says um, he wanted to justify himself. And um, that's true of many of us when we're trying to make clever comments we're wanting to look good in front of others and this is exactly the trap that he fell into who is my neighbor who is my neighbor and Jesus goes on to tell this seemingly simple little story the parable of the Good Samaritan which was a challenge actually to the racism and prejudice of his day It's not primarily about helping people. It's a lovely Sunday school story which we can teach our little children about the importance of helping people. And it is. It's very important. But let me just take you into the story a little bit to get behind some of what Jesus is saying, to give you some of the the background and actually how impactful this little story is for us Um, in the 21st century. So this injured man is helped by the most unlikely of people. The story is there. This man is on his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's mugged very badly. They take away his clothes. They beat him away, leaving him half dead. He's in a very bad way. And then he's a bit unfortunate because a priest comes along and when he sees the man he passes by almost (laughs) you can see him if there's a road involved he literally crosses the road and hurries past on the other side and then a Levite somebody who serves in the temple who also is very religious comes upon the scene and passes by on the other side now the point of the next person is the point of the story the third man who comes along who helps this man is a Samaritan who is um, a hated enemy of the Jews. Now, the history goes back a long way. It's a bit like the history of of the various warring factions in Yugoslavia, the Serbs, the Croats, and so on. History went back, and there's hatred involved on each side. Samaritans hated Jews. Jews hated Samaritans. Think for a moment... 
Put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan. Let me just take you into... You've come across this scene. you come across this badly injured stranger, this naked man lying in the road who's obviously been very badly assaulted. At least four objections certainly come into my mind, might come into your mind as you come into this scene. First objection is this. If I linger here, the robbers are going to do the same to me. Do I really want that? The second objection is, if I start helping them, him, and then someone comes along, they'll think I did it. After all, I'm a Samaritan. <laughs> They'd lock me up and throw away the key. Thirdly, if I stop and help this guy, it's going to cost me time, effort and money. I just can't afford those at the moment. Fourthly, now remember, you're a Samaritan. I'm a Samaritan. What will my people think of me for helping one of our hated enemies? Now, you can probably think of more, but those were the kind of four objections that I thought of as I find myself, in my mind, coming across this terrible scene. There's lots of reasons to pass by on the other side. And uh, here's something I stumbled upon, which is worth repeating, I think, that the reasons to pass by on the other side will always outnumber the reasons for becoming involved. I'll say that again, it's worth repeating. The reasons to pass by on the other side will always outnumber the reasons for becoming involved. Let me tell you a story. It's a story that you might know. There was a, a man, um, a young man, 28-year-old man, in 1938 called Nick Winton. Now, he was a very successful young man. He'd left school without any formal qualifications, actually, but he went into banking and he was doing very well. And um, in the winter of 1938, in December 1938, he and his mate were going to go skiing. Now, skiing in 1938 was not something that the average Brit would do. Um, it was the privilege of the very few. He was one of the elite. And uh, he was going to go skiing with his friend, but his friend rang him up, again, to have a telephone in 1938. <laughs> I mean, we all carry his mind, you know. But the telephone in 1938 was, it was quite something, if you had one in your house. And his friend rang him up and he said, look, Nick, uh, rather than going skiing, I'd like us to do something else. And he said, well, what do, you, what do you want? He said, well, actually, he said, I've heard about these Jewish people who are wanting to leave Czechoslovakia. Um, hundreds of families are queuing up in Prague to try to be processed to leave the German Reich. Now, in 1938, the historians amongst you will know that the Germans um, invaded, basically, Czechoslovakia. And we also know that wherever they started to increase their influence in the countries around them, the Jewish people would, would very soon be persecuted. And it was already happening at the end of 1938. And Hundreds of Jewish people and their children 
were coming into Prague and into other areas of Czechoslovakia on, in the border areas to try to escape, but they couldn't. These two young guys, Nick Winton and his friend, went to Prague and they stayed there for three weeks and they started um, an organisation I still can't find the name of, <laughs> but they started this little organisation to liaise with the German authorities to get Czech uh, Jewish children out of the German Reich and they would come through Holland into Britain. It's a fascinating story. Uh, they tried, to, uh, Nick Winton in fact worked from home, he got his mother involved, he got his friends involved and he formed this little organisation to try to get Jewish children out of Czechoslovakia. The idea being uh, that uh, these Jewish children would have to come on their own, some of them babes in arms, and effectively they would be fostered by British families. And he wrote um, articles in um, uh, this uh, British magazine, which was, uh, had a large circulation, and he would put an advert in it. Can you take these children? Now, in order to foster these children, you would have to put up 50 pounds, which again, in those days, was quite a lot of money. Um, and he saved 669 Jewish children. He got them out. The sad thing was that on the very last day before the borders were sealed in 1939, just as the war started, there were 250 Jewish children on a train in Prague that couldn't get out. And almost all of those children died during the war. He's known as the British Schindler. Nick Winton went on to be Sir Nicholas Winton and he died last year at the age of 105. Almost nobody, even now, knows about him. So, is that how you inherit eternal life? Because Jesus says, go and do likewise. <coughs> Tells this story about the Good Samaritan, and he says to the man, go and do likewise. Is that the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you'd be forgiven for thinking if that was the answer. And I believe that many sections of the Christian church have fallen into that trap because they say, and if you went to many other churches in our country today, you would hear this basic message, be moral, be upright, help people, and that is the way God will accept you and you'll get eternal life. But this is why it's so important to recognise that there's a little story coming after this one which is linked with this first story which actually gives you the second side of the coin and which gives you the answer to the question, the proper answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So let's look at that story. It's very, very unfortunately got cut off at verse 41. I'm really cross about that and we'll be having words with David Moss. <laughs> now, chapter 10, 38 to 42, I'll just read those very quickly. Jesus and his disciples were on their way and he, come, he comes to this village uh, it's called Bethany, where a woman called Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. 
But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, this was a family that Jesus knew very well. Mary, Martha, and her brother Lazarus. And if you go on to read the Gospels, you will see that uh, at least three times Jesus visits their home. Now, this is a little story about priorities. You have to recognise that in the Middle East, hospitality was one of the biggest things you could do. And it was a source of shame if you didn't offer proper hospitality to people. It's a bit like life groups on a Tuesday evening. It's not quite like that, but you know what I mean. And if I'm honest, I have some sympathy for Martha. (laughs) Here's Martha. She's got almost certainly more than 13 guests coming. You can see the parallels between this and, and life groups. She's got at least 13 guests coming to her home. Probably more, because in those days, Jesus had a following of hundreds of people. So she's going to be busy in the kitchen, isn't she? And her sister is not helping. I have some sympathy for Martha in this story. Um, But what does Jesus say to her? Martha, Martha goes to Jesus and complains. What does Jesus say? He says... You're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Again, this little story is so countercultural for that age. It's shocking, absolutely shocking, because the women belonged in the kitchen and it was the men who sat in the lounge, as it were, listening to the teacher, listening to the rabbi. The place of the women was in the kitchen. Now you'll find this again and again and again in Luke. He's really interested in women and the vulnerable and the outsiders and the aliens. And in that culture, women were numbered in that grouping. So... The thing for us is, uh, in this kind of priority situation, is listening to Jesus the real priority? Because he says, in that culture, in that situation, actually, listening to me is more important than the shame that might come upon your family as a result of that. Martha's doing the right thing. Or is it Mary? Yeah, Mary is doing the right thing. So Martha, relax, chill, come and listen to me. There are so many voices in the world, aren't there? I was trying to think of uh, adverts and my mind went a complete blank and I didn't really want to go and Google adverts. And uh, you'll all have your favourite adverts. Mine at the moment is the Lynx advert. I do love the Lynx adverts. And if you're a bloke, you'll get them. I think if you're female, you probably don't. But anyway, think about the Lynx adverts. 
But there's so many adverts, well, I couldn't think of very many. And the ones that I could think of were fairly old. Like the Chicken Tonight. Everybody knows about Chicken Tonight, don't they? <laughs> there was also one that I could think of which was, uh, has um, some associations which are not very good, but it stayed in my mind, and that is Clunk Click Every Trip. Green Cross Code. I can't remember what the Green Cross Code tells you to do, but I remember the Green Cross Code. You're worth it. A favourite of mine when I was managing quite a lot of people was the Nike one. Just do it. <laughs> and um, there are meta messages that we're all kind of um, hearing every day of our lives. The big messages, maximise your income, achieve the perfect work-life balance. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? Get a better car, better house, have a nice haircut, smell nice. All the kinds of things that are important in our 21st century culture. Jesus says, only one thing is needed. And sometimes it's helpful, isn't it, to get your priorities straight. Because most of our lives is spent dealing with ephemeral issues. Things that are really not that important getting up, cleaning your teeth, putting your clothes on. There's lots of details in life, but sometimes it's important to recognise that there is only one thing needed. And again, the shocking thing, the amazing thing, is that Jesus says, it's listening to me. That's the only thing, Martha, that you need to do, is listen to me. So whose voice, whose advice really matters to you so that you would mould your life around it? And here's a question for you. Do you structure your week so that you prioritise listening to the Saviour? So where are you on a Sunday morning? Well, <laughs> you're here. Where are you on a Tuesday evening? And why is it that you come here? Is it to hear the voice of the Saviour? Because that's what Jesus says is the only really important thing in life. I have a favourite preacher who would quite often used to say, now here's the thing. Now here's the thing. And you knew at that moment that Bobby was coming to the colonel the thing that really mattered, the substance, the elemental and fundamental truth of what he was trying to convey on a particular Sunday morning. Here's the thing. And here's the thing in this story. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Is it about helping people, being countercultural, putting my life on the line, putting up time and effort and money to support those who need my help. That's half the answer. The other half of the answer, the other side of the coin, the complementary truth, is that you have to listen to Jesus Christ. He has died for our sins, as I mentioned earlier. He's risen again and will come for us one day. Do you believe this? And is it at the centre of your life? Do you focus your life around? Do you mould your life around this? 
Is it at the very centre of your existence? So if you took away loads of other things, you'd be left with this. If you stripped away the house and the car, even the family, the money, the clothes, everything else that from time to time we find ourselves living for, what would be left? Would, would it be the kernel that really is you? Would it be your relationship with Jesus Christ? Because that's what he's saying here. The only thing that's important is listening to me. Finish with this. Uh, you may or may not know that Maggie and I are at the point where we're just about to finish the West Wing. It's taken us a while and uh, we get frustrated from time to time when our son is around in the house and we can't watch the West Wing because he wants to watch something else. And um, I mentioned that because it's got a link with what I'm going to say now. You'll, you'll see the link in a moment. I remember reading... Um, when Bill Clinton was president of the White House, that he had a plaque made up that sat on his walnut desk in the Oval Office. And it was there to keep him centred on the big priority. It said, it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid because there were so many other things that he had to think about, but this was the fundamental thing that he had to get right. If he didn't get this right, everything else would fall to pieces. It's the economy, stupid. And for you and me, it's about listening to Jesus and responding to him in a life that's centred around others. That's what these two little stories, what this passage is saying to us. It's a very simple message, actually, isn't it? But again, it's shocking, it's countercultural, because if you try to live like this in the 21st century in Britain, you will come up against some problems.